The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Uh, I invite you now to open up God's Word with us. Uh, we are turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's on page 961 of a Purack Bible. If you need one, uh, grab a Bible near you and let's open to 1 Corinthians 15 in the New Testament as you're turning there. Uh, I have been waiting to get to this week. Uh, I'm just thrilled and excited. I, I, I think that this subject matter this morning is riveting. I hope you will in, uh, agree with me. Maybe you've been anticipating this as well. Isn't it fascinating that the Apostles' Creed has this article that he descended into hell? Uh, what, a, what a thought. What a line. Um, I will not be repeating uh, what I did in Sunday school this morning. Let me just tell you what you missed if you weren't in Sunday school. First of all, uh, we missed you, and you missed a lot of important content relative to this subject. However, we recorded it, and so it's going to be available on our Facebook page, and I would implore you, implore you, implore you to go and watch it. Because in Sunday school, we presented six different views for how the church has throughout history understood what does the Apostles' Creed mean when it says that Jesus descended into hell. We're not going to repeat all of that this morning. You have to go and look at the content online. What we are going to do is say, what does it mean for us that the Apostles' Creed says that Christ descended into hell? We spent our Sunday school understanding the content behind it. We want to spend this morning's sermon applying the truth of that content to our souls. So, if you haven't already, turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, and uh, also, if you'd like a head start at a certain point, we're going to be turning left into Luke's gospel in chapter 22. So if you're a person who wants a head start, put a pencil on Luke 22. We'll get there eventually. But we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15 to start. 1 Corinthians 15 is the apostolic summary of the gospel. The apostolic summary of the gospel. If you've got your Bible there, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, let, us, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come now to your word and we ask that as we meditate on your son, we think about his person and his work and the fullness and the completion of his agony and sufferings, the estate of humiliation, we pray that you would sober us by your spirit this morning, Lord, that you would humble us, that you would keep us free from distraction that would take our minds away from extended meditations upon the sufferings of Jesus. Lord, bless us now as we turn to the scriptures and bless those scriptures to us that we might read, mark, learn, and inwardly receive the truth from your Holy Spirit, Lord. Bless us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. Here now the apostolic summary of the gospel in 1 Corinthians at verse 1 through verse 6. This is the Word of God. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, 
that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. So may he rise eternal truth upon our hearts today. Again, 1 Corinthians 15 and also Luke 22 eventually. Let's get right to it, shall we? What the Apostle Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15 is after walking through uh, the church in Corinth, uh, having a number of issues, he goes back to the elementary principles and says, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? And Paul says, in apostolic summary, verse 3, I delivered to you the good news of the gospel, which I received, which is that Christ died, verse 3, for our sins, and according to the scriptures, verse 4, that he was buried, that he was raised, and then appeared to uh, many witnesses in his resurrection state before ascending uh, to heaven. You'll notice that as Paul summarizes the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, he doesn't say that Jesus descended into hell. So why does the Apostles' Creed have this article, he descended into hell? Uh, we are very likely comfortable or perhaps growing in comfort with the knowledge of what the Apostles' Creed teaches relative to the person and work of Jesus, uh, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, buried. And then we arrive at, at this very unique article of the Creed. What is it doing in the Apostles' Creed? Why is it here? Uh, and why does it matter? The, the longer explanation to why is it here is, uh, as I already told you, accessible to you. We want to be thinking especially about what, is it, what does it mean for us? What is it that the Church of Christ has been confessing uh, for 2,000 years about the personal work of Christ for our sake? So, quick summary. What does it mean that Jesus descended into hell? The short version of this is that we do not believe that the Bible teaches that Jesus literally descended into hell. In the Reformed tradition, we do not teach that Jesus literally descended into the intermediate state of hell. So, hang with me here for a moment. Where there is the intermediate state of heaven, there is also the intermediate state of hell. Heaven is the intermediate state for those who are saved. Hell is the intermediate state of those who are lost. Heaven is the precursor for the eternal state of the new heavens and new earth. Hell is the precursor for the eternal state of the lake of fire. Heaven and hell stand opposite. Likewise, the new heavens and new earth and the lake of fire stand opposite. And what we are saying is that the Apostles' Creed does not mean that Jesus literally descended into the intermediate state of hell. Rather, the Apostles' Creed is articulating in language that really grabs you, which is, I think, quite effective, describing the extreme degree of Christ's humiliation and suffering and agony in body and soul in his physical body and in his human soul. So, as Jesus bore the wrath of God upon the cross, 
as his body was given over to the state of death, so we summarize that by saying he descended into hell. That is to say that Christ's hell that he descended into consisted of suffering and dying under God's judgment while being humiliated by his enemies. And as he entered into the estate of death, as his body remains in the tomb and under the power of the grave for three days, all of that is encapsulated in this phrase, he descended into hell. Again, when Paul summarizes the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, he speaks of death, burial, resurrection, appearances, but the descent into hell is not to be understood as a literal action of Christ's specific locality of going to a particular place. If it was, this is where Paul would say it. And also, interestingly, none of the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, recount for us a literal descent of Christ's soul into hell. If a descent of Christ into the intermediate state of hell was a part of the accomplishment of our salvation, the Gospels would say it in addition to Paul summarizing the Gospel in 1 Corinthians 15. Instead, and again, if you're intrigued by that, it's more of a teaser to you to go look at this Sunday school class. Instead, the Bible uses the language of Christ's descent, his incarnation, his entering into the estate of humiliation, and the Apostles' Creed uses the terminology of hell to describe the fullness of Christ's agony and suffering and pain as he bears the wrath of God in body and soul, as he undertakes the work of the mediator in our place here on earth. That's what we mean. So, when the Apostles' Creed speaks of a descent into hell, it vividly communicates the sorrow that is inflicted upon Christ in body and soul as he dies for you and remains under the power of death for three days in the grave. Okay? So, we should ask the question then, as I, as I often have and I've heard other people ask all the time, so where did Jesus' soul go between Friday and Sunday? Because, I mean, I'm defending this position to you here that, that we're not saying he descended into the intermediate state of hell. So where does he go? Well, Jesus himself tells us. Isn't that helpful? <laughs> Jesus says where he goes. The, his spirit's location immediately after his death as he issues the promise to the believing thief who dies next to him, saying to him, what? Today you will be with me, where? In paradise. Which is a reference to the intermediate state, not of hell, but of heaven. Jesus commits his human soul into the Father's hands before he died. Luke 23, 46. Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, my soul. Where was Jesus' soul in the intervening time between Friday and Sunday? Christ's human spirit entered triumphantly into heaven immediately after his death into fellowship with his Father and all the spirits of those who had believed and trusted in the Messiah up till that point, including Old Testament believers. And then on the third day, soul and body are reunited into a glorious resurrection body just as you and I expect for ourselves. But that's getting ahead, isn't it? We're not into that article of the creed just yet. We'll get there. But today, it's he descended into hell. 
And when we confess that, the church means that Christ entered into the fullness and completion of agony and passion by his sufferings in body and in soul, including all of his life, particularly the agony of Gethsemane and Golgotha, and then to be submitted to the power of the grave for three days. There are some who say, that doesn't make any sense. We should take it out of the creed. But for those who understand what it means when we confess Jesus descended into hell, it becomes deeply moving, deeply satisfying to consider the length of Christ's agony for our sake. But you must properly understand what it means. And if you do that, if you think of what Jesus has done for you in his suffering and in his death, then you will marvel at the lengths to which Jesus has gone for you as he dies for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, Jesus has won for you salvation. And normally when we think about that, we think about his sufferings with respect to his body. We think about nails and a cross and thorns and a spear. And when we do that, we are focused on the physical aspects, the, the mocking and the beating. And it is very true that Jesus did suffer those things in his body. But many people died by Roman crucifixion. It was not his crucifixion that was unique about Jesus' death. But what is absolutely unique about the death of Christ is not the physical realities, but the spiritual realities. Those things that we can't see. Those things that don't immediately jump off the page of the Scriptures when we read about them. It's easy for us to identify with physical sufferings because we think about Christ's body and we think about His wounds and we think about that. But it is more difficult to internalize the reality of the spiritual sufferings of his soul, the anguish that he experienced. But, but, we can grow in an understanding of it. And places like Luke 22 help us with that. So come with me to Luke 22. In Luke 22, we find Jesus, prior to his arrest, prior to his being handed over by Judas the betrayer, we find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and many of us may be familiar with this, but, but Jesus has a moment in Gethsemane prior to being handed over to those who would condemn and judge him, where he is alone. And so what we want to do is we want to go to that garden with the Savior in Luke 22, specifically at verse 39, under the heading, Jesus prays on the Mount of Olives, which is the Garden of Gethsemane. We want to go to that garden. And loved ones, I want you to catch a view of what Jesus is doing for you there in that terrible place. Luke 22 at verse 39 says, And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. 
And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When he arose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Can you, can you, by the eye of faith, go to the garden and behold Jesus here? Luke is describing your Savior in this moment. Listen to the way one Puritan commentator explains this. It's so good, I just have to share it with you. He says, speaking of this passage, Go, go to the garden and behold Christ rolling in the dust. See that brave and magnanimous prince stretched out on the ground, that generous line of the tribe of Judah prostrate on the earth. Hear him complaining bitterly of sorrow surrounding him on every side. See the drops of blood which owing to the incredible anguish of his soul, his sacred body is strained. Hear the supplications of your Savior offering up with crying and tears and drops of blood. Go to the garden and behold Christ in this moment and ask Him, why are you under such great anguish? Why is your soul under such dread? There are no chains and spears and whips. There is no crown of thorns here. There is no Roman guard. There is no nails. There is no hammer. There is no cross. But here is Jesus in the fullness of his anguish in unparalleled sorrow as he bears the weight of the Father's wrath for our sins, experiencing the cup of God's wrath and anger as the mediator, as the substitute, as the surety in your place. Look upon Jesus in the garden and then ask the question, is my sin a small matter? Does my sin only deserve a little punishment? This Puritan goes on to say, Behold, 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 I beseech you, behold again and again the inconceivable bitterness of those sufferings which Christ has endured for you. Here is the champion of our salvation bringing the hope of the gospel to us by his agony in the garden. The garden! The garden! Why? Because Adam failed in the garden, didn't he? And brought humanity and all of the earth under the curse of sin. The Lord Jesus in a garden bears the weight of the curse of sin upon himself. Because by entering into this spiritual agony, he is preparing to crush the head of the serpent. But first, he himself must bear our awful load upon his very soul, not just his body. 
So when we say that Christ descended into hell, we mean that Christ descended into the lowest degree of agony and humiliation and suffering possible as he descended into hell spiritually with respect to bearing our awful load of sin and as he enters into the power of the grave for three days. That's what we mean when we say that Christ descended into hell. Now, what does it matter for you? What does it matter for you that Christ descended into hell with this understanding? Calvin says, this is of no small matter. This is not a small thing that we're thinking about, Christ's descent into hell. What advantage is it for you and I that we have a Savior who has descended into hell with respect to bearing the weight of our load of sin and entering into the tomb for us? I want to tell you that, that there is endless comfort and peace and grace and mercy provided to you as a child of God because our Savior has done this. There is endless amounts, but I've got five reasons. Five reasons why there is beautiful comfort for you and I as God's people that we have a Savior and reasons why we should confess this truth. And the first thing is that when you and I confess Jesus Christ who suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, and was buried, and descended into hell and raised, we are joining the triumphant procession of the church through every age who have said, this is what we believe. And you and I, in our generation, need to be identified with the historical stream of the Christian faith to say we are not our own, we don't stand on our own, we're not an independent bunch, we are the church of God throughout all the ages, and when we confess he descended into hell, we join the church in its confession of this transcendent reality of gospel truth. So the first comfort is that it unites us to the church throughout every age. And we should want to be united with the church of every age. We don't want to be on our own or stand on our own or stand separate from the entire witness of the church throughout history. We want to be with them, not standing on our own. And when we confess this article, we join the church in its profession of faith. Secondly, when we confess Jesus Christ who descended into hell, it provides for us assurance in the face of our doubts. So let me ask you, do you ever doubt? You might say, well, what don't I doubt from time to time, right? We all face doubts. We are all, perhaps, at moments, tempted to think, God has forsaken me. God has abandoned me. God has left me by myself and utterly turned his face from me. Christian believer, the descent of Christ into hell with this understanding gives us the assurance in our doubt to remember that Jesus Christ has put the matter of that issue away 2,000 years ago. Jesus Christ was forsaken of God the Father so that you would not be forsaken. Jesus Christ was forsaken so that you could be forgiven. He was cast out that you would be welcome. When you are in the face of your doubt, 
the Apostles' Creed here in this article summarizing what Christ has done for you in His person and work is like a peace that guards our hearts and minds in various ordeals to say that God will not forsake you because He has forsaken His Son for you so that you would never be. In your doubt, do not say that God has forsaken you. The third comfort it gives to us to say that Christ descended into hell in the fullness of His humiliation and agony is it gives us strength when we ourselves are scorned. I asked how many of you have ever doubted. Now I'll ask you, how many of you have ever in any degree whatsoever borne reproach for identifying yourself with the name of Jesus, for calling yourself a Christian, and had someone look at you and say, you believe what? About who? And in their evaluation came to the conclusion that you are a small-minded person because you believe a fable of a fairy tale. Have you ever received scorn for identifying the name of Jesus? If you have ever borne scorn for Jesus, you have shared in His humiliation. Jesus Himself was reviled, misunderstood, hated, and mocked. And loved ones, if God should choose to lay the affliction of scorn upon you, don't despair. Don't despair. Don't give up hope, but be strengthened. Your Savior has borne scorn for you. Don't be ashamed to bear scorn for Him. What does it matter that they think of you? If Jesus calls you His own, And if He has borne the cross, shouldn't we also be willing to bear a little bit of revilement for His sake? Hebrews 13.6 We can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So what? It gives us strength when we are scorned because Christ Himself was scorned and to a degree that we will never be so we can be strengthened. Number four, and this one is so important. It gives us hope in suffering. It comforts us in our own physical sufferings, spiritual sufferings, and emotional sufferings. Do you know what it is like to feel and perceive that you are in darkness? Bodily, perhaps, by sickness? Emotionally? Or spiritually? Do you know darkness? You are not alone. Because the Son of God has suffered hell for you. The book of Hebrews makes this point so tenderly when it says, that Jesus is tempted in every way as we are. Jesus knows what it is like to experience darkness of suffering in body, soul, and in mind. The Lord Jesus is therefore a sympathetic, merciful, and faithful high priest. When you suffer in your body, it is opportunity for you to meditate upon the sufferings of Christ in His body. When you are suffering in your mind, it is an opportunity for you to meditate 
upon the resolve of the Lord Jesus who had in the anguish of His mind the reality of the cross before Him. When you suffer within your soul, it is an opportunity to meditate upon Jesus who likewise suffered and obeyed and triumphantly went forward. Jesus does not promise you that you will not suffer. I love you so much. That's why I tell you that. Jesus doesn't promise you that you won't suffer, but He does promise that by His sufferings, the sting of the curse of sin is removed from your sufferings. And that means that when you suffer, God is not being revealed to you as a condemning judge, but as a faithful Father who is making you more like His Son, not less. When you suffer, you have hope in your sufferings because you have a Savior who has gone ahead of you. Jesus drank the overflowing cup of wrath so that an equally overflowing cup of blessing might belong to you as a Christian. He fell on His face in agony that you might lift your head in joy despite all of your circumstances. His prayers were unanswered so that you might always be heard by the Father in prayer as you go to Him in suffering. There is strength and comfort for the people of God when we consider what our Savior has done for us in the fullness of His anguish as He descended into hell in body and spirit. (sighs) And finally... Your suffering Savior in the anguish of His descent into hell and body and soul provides for you peace in the face of death. I often hear people say, you know, people catch it and I think they just repeat it. They say, I'm not afraid to die. I'm afraid of dying. I'm afraid of the process. You and I have known courageous saints, haven't we? Who have faced the reality of suffering and death and who have met the reality of their mortality in faith and with hope. Why can the Christian believer do that? Why can the Christian believer do that? Because the world wonders. It doesn't know and it doesn't have an answer. So why can you? Because Christ has suffered the darkness of hell, we say with David, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Because Christ has descended into hell in the fullness of the anguish of His sufferings in body and soul, the gates of heaven are open to you as a Christian. Because Christ so lowly descended in agony and humiliation, He has made it possible for you to ascend to the heights of glory. What a Savior! Who takes you by the hand as you cross the river in faith and in hope. There is a deep richness that lays behind this article of the Creed. We should not stumble over it. We shouldn't mystify it. We shouldn't suggest it means something that the Bible never says it does. But we should understand what the Bible says about the extent to which Jesus descended into hell, namely in His bearing the curse in body and soul for you. What wondrous love is this? 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, this is overwhelming to us, and we thank you that you have sent your Son into the world that we might have hope and unending hope because of what he has done for us. Lord, words fail us, and so we simply worship you and confess our love and desire to receive Christ as a Savior for our own souls. And Lord, we pray for those today who don't know the hope of Jesus, that they might know such comfort from a Savior who has gone to such lengths lengths for us. Oh, Lord, have mercy upon us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.